Everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament. And today we come to the last gospel account written for us in the gospel according to John. The gospel of John was written with really one primary purpose in mind that John gives us at the end of the gospel. It was written to persuade people that they might believe in Jesus. The opening verses declare right out from the outset that Jesus is God stressing his unique relationship with the Father. The book focuses on seven of Jesus' signs, his miracles, which are laid out in what is known as the, the kind of the book of signs in verses uh, chapters 1 through 12, and then closes with a really close, telescoped view of the Passion Week in chapters 13 uh, through 19, the resurrection in chapter 20, and the closing epilogue in chapter 21. These, these signs that are so central to John are to show Christ's divinity. Where the other three so beautifully orchestrate Christ as the Messiah, as the, the, the man, uh, the greater Adam, the final gospel account truly in every way stresses his divinity. Jesus called people to believe in him, promising them eternal life. And he proved that he could give that by raising Lazarus, kind of the penultimate sign of the book. By his own death and resurrection, Jesus becomes the ultimate statement that he is the resurrection and the life. Not only that, but John features Christ's seven I am statements using the divine name himself his encounters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, his upper room teachings and the washing of the disciples' feet, his high priestly prayer, perhaps the most well-known summary of the gospel in John three sixteen. So with that, a little bit of an introduction. Today we'll be looking at the opening chapter of the gospel according to John, a power-packed, one of the most important chapters uh, really in the New Testament as it lays out the identity of, of Jesus. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, he was not the light, though, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. All right, we'll stop there in this 
from this opening prologue uh, of John. The prologue functions in many ways like an overture to an opera. It tells the story from creation to new creation, from old covenant to new covenant. It introduces the main motives in the drama that are about to unfold. Jesus is God's light and life, the supreme manifestation of divine glory, grace, and truth, evoking also the divine word and its human witnesses. And John draws together the story of creation in the beginning. Of Israel's election, he came to his own. With Israel's temple as the location of the divine presence, glory and dwelling among us. Literally, he came and tabernacled among us. Of Israel's covenant charter, the law given through Moses. The backstory is that God called Israel to be the means of rescuing the world so that he might one day rescue the world by becoming Israel in the person of its representative, the Messiah. Thus, in the prologue, God's promise to dwell with his people and to rescue them from the darkness takes place through the sending of the divine word into the world, into the human flesh of the true image. And when the word is received, it creates new children, not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And so this birth, this this change into the children of God can only come from an act of God himself. It's not anything we can will ourselves into. God has to do it, and that's what Christ has come to do. The tragedy is that the word has been resisted by Israel. John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But God's new temple has still been built in the person of Jesus, and through the work of the Spirit, and as in Revelation's picture of the new Jerusalem, the dwelling of God is with humans and in humans. John has often been misread as though it was telling humans how to leave the present world and get to heaven, when in reality, it's explaining how heaven itself and the person of its Lord has come to dwell among us. How the one through whom all things were made came to rescue and renew the created world. So John describes the coming of the word into the world, bringing bringing with it light and life. John the Baptist witnessed the light, the light which evoked the twofold response of either unbelief or belief. That's the only proper responses. And finally, the Word entered human existence as the only begotten Son of God the Father. And this gives the reader the signal that the Son of God in the rest of the narrative, while being recognizable, uh, de- uh, by being a recognizable designation for the Messiah, was now also be- to be understood in terms of the eternal word through whom all things were made. The climax then of the prologue is obviously verse 14. The word became flesh, tabernacled, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. The pre existent word, the word by which all things were created, tabernacled or pitched his tent in the very creation he brought into existence. The startling implication is that all prior forms of divine presence were ultimately transitory and preparatory. 
the Word made flesh is a unique mode of divine disclosure. Indeed, the climactic manifestation of divine disclosure. The supreme revelation of God. And with it has come God's covenant favor, grace, and his ultimate divine testimony, truth. The story of the prologue tells us the story of the whole gospel in a miniature overture. This is the story of Jesus told as the true and redeeming story of Israel. Told as the true and redeeming story of the Creator and the cosmos. And so now, with that overture, that beautiful prologue that lays out the glories of what we have in Christ and what He has come to do, He now begins the story with the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So here we get the introduction to John the Baptist here, right? He is out. He is faithfully performing his duties as the herald, as the messenger who makes way or prepares the way for the Messiah. Now, he is not Elijah incarnate. This is not anything there. But he has come in the spirit of Elijah, right? The final Old Testament prophet which ushers in the new covenant through the coming of the Messiah. He prepares the people and that is what his baptism is. His baptism is a baptism of preparation, a baptism of repentance, preparing the people to properly receive the glories of their coming Messiah. And he makes something very clear, right? about this this reality of him. He says that he is not the Christ, right? None of that is true because at the end of the day, the one that he proclaims was actually before him. He is greater than him. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, the one that is coming. We see now in the next scene, John gives us that beautiful picture when Jesus came to John. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is 
the Son of God. So here we have that beautiful moment of the representation, that that public declaration of Christ being the anointed one. And that's the picture of the Spirit coming upon him, is that he is the anointed one of God. And what is it? This is the most important statement I think you can hear today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right from the outset, the opening of Christ's ministry is in the shadow of the cross. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. As the spotless Lamb of God, which through his substitutionary death would take away the sins of his people. What a glorious reality that out from that opening prologue, God has come, God has dwelt among us. What an incredible reality. But right from the outset, John wants to make clear why God has come in his son, Jesus Christ. And the answer is he's come to die. He's come to die for sinners, to take away their sin, that they might be restored and reconciled to him and to live forever. And after this picture of anointing that comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is how indeed men are made children of God. Remember, it must come from God Himself, and that will come through the Holy Spirit. That is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, this regeneration which Christ pours over His people and gives them new life to walk faithfully in Him. You must be born again to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And that will be a key teaching to Nicodemus here in just a couple chapters. And after this beautiful picture of baptism, the declaration that he is indeed the Son of God, the Lamb of God, he now calls his first disciples. Verse 35, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we get the first calling of the disciples. And and notice, right, who it is that is the first, in many ways, uh, evangelist outside of John the Baptist. John the Baptist obviously is preparing people. He declares that Jesus is the Son of God. And this tells us that Andrew was, uh, was one who was with John, who heard John speak. And he immediately runs. In faith, and he goes and tells his brother Simon that the Messiah has come. He have, we have found the Messiah. So Andrew becomes the, the first evangelist that, that without, we, we know of no way in which Peter would have possibly known or perhaps known of Christ. And so what's so amazing is that throughout so much of the scriptures, Andrew is always painted in the shadow of his brother. Andrew is, is referred to as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, in so many cases. But it's so important that even though he often existed in the shadows of his brother, Andrew 
was the means that God used to get Peter, to bring Peter and to make him aware of the Messiah. Yes, Jesus would come and individually call Peter to himself, just as he does every single person. But God, Jesus ultimately usually introduces himself to us through the means of those he's already called and introduced to himself before. And so this is such an important reality because so often we see ourselves existing in the shadows, ministering in the shadows, maybe like Andrew. But oh, how important the ministry of Andrew was in helping prepare Peter for the glories of the Messiah that he would soon meet. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, so this final picture here now where he has Andrew and Peter to himself and he also has now Philip and Nathaniel. And once again, notice Philip now is the evangelist. Philip is the one who goes and tells Nathaniel of the fact that he has found the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, all of the scriptures, all of those old covenant testimonies point to Jesus, which will be made clear in the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. When who appears? Moses and Elijah, picturing that Christ is the culmination of the law and the prophets. And Nathaniel, you know, basically says, hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He expresses some contemporary skepticism that a prophet would arise from Galilee, a place that was very insignificant. A Galilee of the Gentiles, it was called, because it was kind of the gateway into the Gentile world. And so he, he seems a bit skeptical here, right? And that's, that's honest, right? Um, because there's nothing about Nazareth mentioned in Old Testament or Jewish literature that would have made a direct connection to the Messiah in any way at this point. And so... He then goes, and, and as Jesus is approaching, and, and Nathaniel, he sees Nathaniel, he immediately calls out, right, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And, and Nathaniel is already kind of taken aback because he's kind of like, Wait, how, how do you know me? And then Jesus basically says, Oh, right, before Philip called you, I saw you under a fig tree, right, where you were sitting. Now, obviously, Philip has ever believed that he was out there and he was alone. And so he is absolutely shocked that Jesus would have this knowledge, right? Jesus is displaying and, and, and revealing his omniscience here, his supernatural knowledge that, that absolutely blows Nathaniel out of the water. And, and just from that little bit, 
Nathaniel's, I mean, he jumps off the edge. I mean, he's ready, right? Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And and even Jesus kind of jokingly takes us aback. You know, wow, you, you say all of this just because I said I saw you under a fig tree? And then he gives this incredible reality, right? But you're going to see greater things than these. These earthly signs, miracles or signs, are a, pow- are a picture of his redemptive power and work. And that is a great segue into what's about to begin happening. The miracles, beginning with what we will see tomorrow, the wedding at Cana. And so, this is a great powerful preparation of the reality that Christ's ministry is going to be testified by great signs and wonders. And he tells them even that, that he will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. These verses allude to Jacob's vision of a ladder or stairway stretching from earth to heaven. And Jesus presents himself as the reality to which the stairway pointed. Jacob saw in a dream the reunion of heaven and earth. And Christ has brought that reality. And what, what Jesus is preparing Philip or, and Nathaniel for in this statement is he's preparing them for the reality that they are about to see the absolute clear picture that heaven has invaded earth in the person of Jesus Christ. What a reality. So much more to see in the coming days as we read through John. God bless.